The reason why it fails is not in the organization's inability to build a thing. That's not where the failure happens. It's in the inability to get the human to adopt the thing. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development as businesses aim for long-term success. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sofion CTO. If you're looking for additional information around new product development or corporate innovation, sign up for Sofian's newsletter where we share news and industry best practices monthly. The fastest way to do this is to go to sofian.com, that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, and click the sign up and stay informed box. Welcome everybody. Today my guest is Chris Colbert. Chris has helped build and run several domestic and international companies focused on innovation and business optimization. He was EVP for Scholastic's core publishing business, and in 2014, he left there to explore the world of higher education and technology-enabled learning systems for adults. He did a stint as managing director for Harvard Innovation Labs, and now he's focused on adaptive culture and the human potential. And it's certainly related to our topics of innovation. He has a great podcast series. It's called Insert Human. And he's working on his second book right now. It's about innovation and people and how technology needs to be designed with both in mind to succeed. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. It's Lovely. my pleasure. Yeah. How are you doing today? You doing okay? Doing pretty well. You know, I... Uh... To my, to my work about sort of where, where humans are, I just did a podcast piece that published this week titled Learning Not to Forget, and it's all about how as we come out of COVID, what lessons that we learn from being in COVID could we, should we carry forward into our new post-COVID life and post-COVID work. So ah, that's great. feeling pretty good about that. Good, good. Yeah, that's something, uh, it's a good, timely topic, and it's, it's that's an important topic for sure. Let's not forget what we may have learned. <laughs> About to come out of it. So, Chris, how did you first get involved in innovation management or the general place of innovation? Well, I have a sort of, I have a slightly contrarian view about innovation. I, I think, you know, I think society, modern society has held it up as a new proposition over the last 10 years or so. And I think in reality, it's been with us since the beginning of, of humankind. I just think the nature of innovation has gotten obviously more technology centric. And I think it's it's both means and ends or impact have become just that much more accelerated. But my my first foray into innovation really was on the back of starting a business back in the late 80s. It was all about bringing technology into the marketing milieu, which prior to that point in time had never really been or was not being done. But I think as we started getting that company going, the other thing that I came to realize about innovation is that the ultimate innovation is not in creating the function. The ultimate innovation is in creating the means for people to engage with the function. And so in, in, a, in a corporate context, if I look back over the last 30 years of my career, I would say the thing that I've innovated best is actually the organizations that I was heading or helping to helping to run. I really think that running high performing organizations, much like creating high performing families that are happy, content and capable of realizing their full capacity is arguably the ultimate innovation task. 
That's I, a long-winded answer. Your no, question. it's great. Uh, when you first started, it's saying innovation's been around forever. It it really has. And the image that popped in my mind was that classic comic strip of the two cavemen standing around the wheel. I mean, right? You know, or, or fire? I mean, the first fire, the yeah. first preacher to figure out how to marshal fire, arguably, was the was one of the first innovators for sure. Yeah. yeah. What I really find interesting is, you know, we, we talk about innovation as creating a product, but you talk about innovation in a different way. It's And you're not going to get a good product without the type of innovation that you were just talking about. It's the people, it's the way they work together. It's that process. Yeah. yeah. One of my observations, I've given a couple of talks on this is it starts with the, the fact, and it is a fact that most innovation fails. Yes, Whether it's it corporate innovation, startup innovation, personal innovation, it doesn't matter. And it fails. And so you have to ask the question, well, why does it fail? And what I've come to believe is the reason why most innovation fails. And, and this includes the, you know, the big innovation by the biggest companies in the land with the biggest budgets and the biggest brains. It too fails. And what I've come to believe, the reason why it fails is not in the organization's inability to build the thing. That's not where the failure happens. It's in the inability to get the human to adopt the thing. That's where the failure happens. So you and I, particularly in today's world where capital is so inexpensive, we can pretty much do anything and build anything whenever we want to. The issue is not in, build, in doing it. The, the issue again is getting people to adopt it, which to me puts a spotlight on we need to spend less time writing code and more time decoding humans. I think the, the greatest miss in society, both professional and personal, corporate and community, is that humans spend virtually no time contemplating what the other actually wants, needs, desires, fears, cares about, whether the other is a potential customer for your innovation or the other is your significant other that you're having you know, partner strife with we pretty much avoid the understanding of the other. And in doing so, we promulgate innovation failure. Chris, do you see uh, it being different in large companies versus small versus really small, uh, two or three people in a startup? Or is it all just the same? How's it different? I think on one level, it's it's very different. And on another level, it's exactly the same. So the, the level where I think it's very different this is a terrible thing to say, but I think it's true. Most large organizations suffer from sclerosis, you know, a hardening, a hardening of the arteries and their ability to be intimate, to be open, to be effective listeners is so calcified. And I'm mixing uh, medical metaphors, so calcified by just the sheer girth and the, and the legacy sort of depth of the entity. And so their ability to rise above their own biases and their own ways of being to better understand the other, I think is, is structurally challenged. So I would say the big guys have an even bigger problem of getting closer to the truth of the customer. I mean, I, you know, I use Coke going back many, many, many years ago when they launched new Coke and the abject failure of their, you know, they the most researched product in history, and they completely missed what the research was telling them. On the other hand, so theoretically, startups should be more nimble, more open, more capable of innovating effectively because they are closer to the ground. 
They don't have legacy structures. They don't have necessarily the biases that these big behemoth companies do. But my observation is that's not, and I think that's somewhat true, but it's not absolutely true. Because at the end of the day, I think the thing that gets in the way really of understanding the other in order to innovate successfully is courage or a lack of courage. Because, Because you need to step before the human that you're, that you want to adopt or whatever it is you're innovating. And you need to actually expose them to the truth of the innovation, the truth of you. And you need to be open to listening to what they actually have to say without the filter of your own bias. And one of the problems I think entrepreneurs get into is, you know, the reason why they're entrepreneurs is because they're convinced their idea is right. So if you're convinced your idea is right, how do you let go of that confidence and have the courage to say, maybe my idea is wrong. Well, it it is interesting because for every successful new company that comes out of somewhere, Jobs and Wozniak, Gates and Allen, Hewlett and Packard, you know, any of these two-person kind of startups, for every one that's successful, I can only want to think of how many failed, right? Oh, yeah. So, but I, I, you know, I saw, I, I listened to recently, there's the, the Guy Raz NPR podcast, How I Built This. Mm-hmm. And there was a story about Atlassian. And those two guys, their solution for any conflict was rock, paper, scissors. That's what they did. That's okay. how, it cited right up front. That's the way they were going to resolve it. And it worked for them, right? It, it helped them avoid the things that I think others got into. I, I think eventually they probably abandoned that. But that, yeah. was, that was a key point. You know, Paul, one thing I want to call out here, just because I think it sometimes gets lost in my verbal shuffle, that when when you as an innovator, anybody as an innovator, is asking another human to adopt your innovation, it's imperative that you recognize that it's a zero-sum game, that in order for them to adopt whatever it is you want them to adopt, you're asking them to give up something else. And I think most innovators completely miss that point. I think most innovators think it's an add-on. But the problem is the capacity of people financially, intellectually, emotionally, whether in the context of a company or outside of company at home, that that is, it's a finite proposition. So it's it's like a pair of jeans. If you innovate a pair of jeans and you want me to adopt a pair of jeans, that means I have to give up the pair of jeans I wear today. Yeah, yeah. That's a very wise observation. I don't think that people uh, realize that or, or think about it in those terms. Very, very interesting. Um, There's a g- great quote that goes with it by uh, Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, who once said, the cost of something is how much of your life you give it. And I think that's right. And I think that's even true in, in corporate America. You remember that old, old expression, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM? Right, right, right. Part of the cost to the procurement officer or the head of IT for buying IBM versus pick another technology company, part of the potential cost was their career, right? Yeah, sure. It wasn't simply the cost of the mainframe. It was actually the cost of the association with the company. And that all gets factored in. And again, innovators, I think, go to this very sort of blunt object kind of approach, which is if I build it. And if the features are better than the features of the competition or the alternative, therefore, I will, they will adopt it. And it's never that simple. No. And, I, you know, what goes into my mind when I hear you speak, I think about work-life balance. You know, each one of us has our definition of what that is. But certainly, wherever your definition is, all work, all life, or somewhere in between, I think your concept of giving something up 
to do something else is, is always there, right? Yeah. And you just see some people just, you know, they're going to work their 80, 90, 100 hour weeks because they're so focused on what they're trying to do. And if they're going to have a partner, it's not an add on. You need somebody willing to do that, right? If you're, right. that's how you're aligned. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, when you think about, think back to the, you know, this, the, the journey you've had and this, whether it be innovation related or, or, or what, are there any success stories that you, you look back and you say, yeah, that was, that was a real success, either something you're personally involved in or something you observed? In terms of the innovation space? Yeah. Or- yeah. Yeah. And thinking of your, your slant on it, right? Your, your slant on the human piece in innovation. Yeah, I mean, I think the greatest innovation success, I mean, I've, I've been moderately successful at the companies I've either built or helped help build, but I think the higher level of success in all those stories, well, let's start with well, what's the measure of innovation yep. success, mm-hmm. right? right? You say, well, well, the measure is how much money did you make, Chris? I'm like, one measure. You know, Paul, I'm not really, I don't think that's the measure of success. I don't think you do either. I I think the measure of success is did we realize material value for all the people that were involved in that innovation, either as creators of the innovation or recipients of the innovation? And that to me is like the ultimate measure of existence, which is do we look back and say, I, I'm more fulfilled, I'm more content, I feel accomplishment, I feel enabled, I feel supported, I feel happier, I feel I feel better. And so if I look at the innovations that I've been involved with, have they have they yielded that outcome either for employees, for customers, for investors? And it's not through the lens of money, it's through the lens of meaning did the innovation contribute positively to the meaning of their life and the feeling of what it meant Mm -hmm. to be alive, the feeling of what it meant to be employed? And I know that sounds wacky, but I actually think it goes back to the Thoreau comment, like we're giving our lives for these things. You know, workers are giving their lives to work. You know, customers are giving part of their lives to adopt whatever it is you want them to adopt. And it's our it's our responsibility to make sure that they look back on that decision as a really great investment, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you go ask the average person to reflect back on their career. Did they have a good one or not? And they're they're probably going to talk to the things they did, the places they worked, the fun they had. Some will say, oh, I invented this and it saved the world. But most of us are just going to say, yeah, that, you know, I really... These were the great things about my work experience, right? The things that I did. And it's going to be about who I worked with, the type of company I worked for, the type of job I did. And it's, you're right, it's not very often about the, the financial product that I brought to market. And it was, you know, it sold billions. So yeah, I, no, yeah, not at all. I mean, yeah. you know, I was actually rereading part of the book I wrote a couple of years ago called This Is It. I was rereading it the other day because I was going to do a little excerpt podcast from it. And the chapter two is titled The Point is the Point, which is being really clear about our intentionality. And as innovators, I think being really clear about, well, what is it we're actually seeking to to do or to yield beyond making money? And in my book, I talk, I sort of came up with this, not sort of, I came up with this formula of sorts to determine 
how you find your point as a human being. Like, how do I know what my, my life intention actually is? And I won't belabor the formula, but the most critical variable in the, in the formula, which is actually an expo- exponential variable, is what I write as desired nature of existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That what we, you know, why we exist and what we want to do is, is nothing compared to how, how it is we feel in our existence. And so I, you know, encourage, encourage people to, to embrace that fact that a large part of the innovation benefit, if you will, is resulting in people, the, the nature of their existence improving, not even just the pure function play of it, but actually the way it feels to be them as a consequence of either being part of your company or as I said, a recipient of, you know, a customer of your business yeah. feeling, you know, I mean, that's the other thing I would say generally about humankind is we are driven by feeling, but we suppress it as a variable in, in, in how we approach our decision-making, or we attempt to suppress it, or we simply don't acknowledge it in the decision-making process, when in fact it is alive and well. Yeah. I once worked with, uh, well, they were a supplier, a uh, German company, small, not too large. And I got to know the managing director of that company, and they were not looking to be financially make a lot of money. They were looking, they were a lifestyle company. They said, look, we want to, we want to have fun. We know we've got some really interesting technology people are going to want, but we want to work on the technology and, and have a, you know, we want to have a, be able to live. And, but they weren't driven towards grow, 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 double your size, that type of thing. It just didn't even enter their consciousness. It was about, uh, let's just make some great stuff. And whatever happens, happens, which was, I admired that. But if I think back to probably one of the the most successful innovation places in the world was Bell Labs. And it, I think it, it drove itself largely on what you just spoke about. You know, people would join that and they were not, the first question they were asked is, what do you want to do? Take a walk around here, spend a month seeing, you know, just talking to different people, seeing what we do, and then decide where you want to fit. I mean, right. that's, that's ultimate from what you were just described, at least to me as a scientific person, that would be, that would be, that would be heaven. <laughs> well, so. you know, and I think not enough companies embrace that sensibility in terms of how they engage with their employees. I mean, I learned early on that the corporate world, I don't think it was unique to America, but the corporate world, as we moved out of the industrial age into the information age, it carried forward many of the practices of the industrial age. And that one of the most damning practices was to treat employees like children you don't trust. Mm, yeah, right. I mean, that was the assembly line model, right? You mm-hmm. punch your ticket, you stay at your post, you do your job, you, you know, and then you punch out. And as we moved into a white collar information world, there was no recognition on the part of corporate America or corporate world that we need to change our policies and approaches. And that frankly, that instead of like controlling people, we should actually unleash them. We should give them latitude to think and to create and to collaborate. Like the assembly line model in what is ostensibly a knowledge industry doesn't work. No, it does not. Yeah. And, and frankly, I think it's belittling to the people within it. You know, when, when I was at Harvard, I, I had a you know, decent sized staff. And one of my constant refrains to people was just stay home. <laughs> I didn't know COVID was coming, but, <laughs> but I'm like, literally just stay home. And they go, what, what do you mean? I go, you know, like this, this Friday, just want, if you guys want to just stay home and just think, 
Like, just think about our business and think about what we're trying to do at the Innovation Lab. Just think for a while and just just play with play with your ideas. And they'd be like, well, what, 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 what do you expect me to come back with? I'm like, what, nothing. I don't just just try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they thought that was like so radical. And for many of them, it was unnerving because they've been used to being treated by like children they don't that aren't trusted. Like you have to have the report on my desk at five o'clock. You know, yeah. you have to punch the assembly line ticket. And I, and I, th I think, you know, my hope is that one day the, the, the corporate world recognizes that people soar when given wings, you know, when, they're, when their wings are no longer clipped. And yes, some people, there will always be freeloaders and one percenters who try to take advantage of the system, but that doesn't mean you should punish the other 99%. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there are uh, great pockets of goodness in even in large, the largest of the large companies. Sometimes it comes from the leadership. Sometimes it comes from just a group of people trying to you know get something done, whether it's skunk works or whatever they're doing. Fortunately, there's a lot of good pockets of of that. And I, I you know, I'm an optimist, so I tend to think yeah. we'll see more and more of that. But you know, there's yeah, some... no, I do too. I don't, I don't, I, I definitely do. And I think there's going to be, I think there's a slow awakening. You know, one of my theories is that we're on the edge of the second renaissance, and I think COVID is actually in a in an odd way really helped accelerate this. But I think there is a slow awakening to this idea of the importance of being human and the importance of treating not just employees, but customers as humans versus automatons or, you know, assembly line ticket punchers. Well, lots of food for thought there, Chris. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm never lacking there. <laughs> well, is there, a, you know, what one key learning or piece of advice would you give to somebody around innovation? Well... I can give you, I'll give you, again, two different answers. The first answer I already alluded to, which is if you want to increase the chances of innovation success, find courage within yourself to be open to the truth about the customer or the human that you are innovating for. Be willing to ask the hard questions, be willing, willing to listen and embrace the hard answers. So that, that would be like my macro answer yeah. to that question. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that sounds trite, maybe, and people are like, what, what does that even mean? But I think it's sort of really, this is my terrible parallel. Most marriages fail not because people fall out of love. They, they fail because they fall out of understanding. And the reason why they fall out of understanding is because they lose the ability, if they ever had it, to actually, to actually talk to each other, to listen to each other, to accept what each other is saying. And that's a courage function. People are afraid of other people. So that's why courage, I think, is essential for any successful innovator. The more structural answer to the question is what I preached for four years when I was at Harvard. If you want to be successful with innovation, you have to answer three questions really, really well. The first one is, what is the problem really? And the operative word there is really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you know the Toyota five whys, you know this whole idea of root cause, the importance of root cause identification, that oftentimes the problem that you claim is a problem is not really a problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Getting really, really deep into what is the problem really, and it relates to the second question, which is who is the customer really? You know, the critical thing here is not beginning with the solution. It's beginning with a really, really articulate definition of the problem through the lens of the customer who you think has that problem. And I would argue that definition should be multifaceted, not just through the functional lens, 
through the lens of time, through the lens of cost, through the lens of psychology, through the lens of physiology, through the lens of, of, of everything. And then the third question is, does the solution solve the problem for that customer, really? And, <laughs> yeah. I, I love the emphasis on really, because that's where really. it falls apart, right? Oh yeah, it yeah. does, right? Well, really? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah great. there's a great, there's a great Steve Job quote where he basically says this. He says, listen, you know, the, the, you know, good innovators see and identify a problem and then they work at it and then they come up with a plausible solution and that, and that's that. But really great, I'm badly paraphrasing, but really great innovators don't stop there. Really great innovators keep going at it and going at it and going at it to make sure that they understand the problem, they understand the customer, and their solution actually does, in fact, solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. I, you know? I love that. That was really outstanding advice. The first part about the the courage, our CEO, Greg Kotikia, he He's spoken and written a lot about this. You need to go out, and if everybody's saying yes to your concept, you haven't found it yet. <laughs> you know, you got to have the courage. You got to find the people who are going to beat it up, right? Then, yeah. then you really know if you have something. And yeah. uh, and leadership has a role in saying yes, and that's okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to fail. It's okay to you know. It's okay to come out with version one, not try to be perfect, but go from there. So there's a lot of so much pressure of, I got to get it right. I got to get it right. And the pressure really should be, well, find out what's wrong with it. Right. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it takes, it takes courage as an individual. You go out and you, here's your baby and somebody's saying, well, your baby's ugly. You know, that's, you've got to have a lot of internal fortitude to accept that and to, well, why? Right. To, to probe that weakness. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I, I think just to reiterate something you just said, you know, I think in corporations particularly, the environment is not conducive or supportive of failure. Like the, you know, yeah, the organizations right. are hardwired to succeed. Yeah. And so everybody from the CEO down to the product manager is basically has to convince themselves that their baby isn't ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And no amount of feedback from the market is going to dissuade them. I mean, think about think about all the new product launches that have occurred in the history of modern business and how many just died on the vine. Yeah, right, right. You know, like... Endless yeah. list, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway. Well, seen anything interesting in, in the news, anything innovation-related or, or human capital-related that you think is important to what we're talking about? You know, it's, it's funny that you asked me that question. I just share this. It's not particularly interesting, but I think it's interesting about me, Chris Colbert, and how I process stuff. I have for, I don't know, eight years thought the whole cryptocurrency thing was snake oil and voodoo. But I literally wrote a note. I'm on the board of a venture firm here in Boston, and I wrote a note to the managing partner yesterday about an investment opportunity they have in the crypto space. And I said, you know, I've been a naysayer of this for a long time, and I'm watching myself shift, shift the shift, completely shift my position because what I'm seeing are are the applications of this technology for me for the first time really beginning to make sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think it just shows you, you know, you can as an observer, you can see stuff emerging and think, you know, this is all 
This is all pie in the sky, poppycock, as I said, snake oil, whatever. And that may be true in the early years until it finds its footing, you know? And then when it finds its footing, I, th I really think the digital currency idea, I think probably in 15 years, most societies, most developed, most of the developed world will, will most, most central banks will have a digital coin. Yeah. And, and I think it really does begin to change the game in a lot of different ways. So I'm just, I guess I'm sort of happy with my change of stance. You know, yeah. That, yeah. That's so important, isn't it? That you can change a stance. I think that's, uh, that's really fundamental. Well, I mean, in a weird way, Paul, it's, it's kind of like what we were just talking about, having the courage to admit I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was really defiant five years ago. Like, this is all a crock or whatever. Like, never going to get traction. You know, it's all speculation. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I was wrong. And, and that's okay. I mean, the, the other thing I'd just say as a, as a, as a clarion cry for your listeners is we all, I think, need to try a little harder to better understand what technology is actually doing to us. There's a great quote by Ash Carter, who is Secretary of Defense for Obama, and he and I worked together at Harvard on some stuff. And one of his quotes was, you can't necessarily stop technology, but you certainly can steward it. And I think that that's a really important message for all of us, that being more mindful of how these new technologies are evolving and trying to steward them to the best of our ability where we get we extract the greatest value for humankind and we mitigate the risk to humankind. I'm not sure we can actually do it as simply as I just articulated it, but I think we have a responsibility to try. I mean, you know, things like AI, I mean, there's a lot being, you know, talked about privacy. There, there are a lot of facets of technology that I think we all need to get more involved with to make sure that, again, the, the, the downstream consequences are not, are not severe. So yeah, well, yeah. Uh, how do I follow that? I don't <laughs> that know. Is, I don't that know. is a really awesome, you know, if we end here, we'd say that's a great spot to end because that was phenomenal. I really appreciate you sharing that. Chris, is there any last thing you'd like to say? I mean, I'm, I'm sure glad you joined us. This has been a really fascinating discussion. The only thing I would say is the work that I do today is an avocation. It's not really a vocation. I'm trying to put a spotlight on on the importance of bringing more humanity and not just into the innovation equation but into every equation what it means to be human and then secondly i'm trying to put a spotlight on the importance of all of us stepping forward as humanists and doing a better job of stewarding our future and particularly integrating technology both appropriately while we eliminate it inappropriately and so for the, the, your listeners who are interested in those topics, you can check out my site, chriscolbert.com. I have all my stuff there, speeches, writings, podcasts, what have you. And I'd love your support. Again, it's not a, it's not a business. It's not a commercial enterprise. It's a human, it's a human enterprise. So. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, that, that's actually outstanding, Chris. And I want to thank you very much for joining us. I think you left the listeners with lots of really fun things to think about and hope so maybe everybody will take a friday off and, and think about what uh, what you just said that would be amazing yeah, wouldn't that be something yeah that would be well right. thank you paul and i uh, really appreciate you inviting me on the show and best of luck with getting the program going and um if i could ever be of help to you let me know outstanding chris thanks a lot you have a wonderful day 
Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.